Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. Second Chronicles chapter 20 this morning. This is our second of two Sunday morning messages that in some ways stand alone and in other ways set up our worship series, which starts next week, that we hope you'll be a part of, an eight-week worship series out of the book of Leviticus. This is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Actually, one of my favorite passages in the Bible period. Second Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to be looking at King Jehoshaphat and this crisis that he and the people of God are facing. And we're going to see three things this morning. What our enemies will do, what we should do as God's people, and what God will do in response. I want to first draw your attention to the first couple of verses where we see what our enemies will do. And let's be reminded that the people of God down through history have always had enemies. The Bible mentions three specifically, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, even Peter says of the devil that he calls him our enemy. He says, don't forget, the devil, your enemy, is like a roaring lion who walks around seeking whom he may devour. Pretty strong language. And the Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Though sometimes even we as Christians, I think, get caught up in thinking our enemy is flesh and blood, but it's not. There are spiritual forces at work that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities in high places. Well, King Jehoshaphat was sort of sitting, as we might say, fat, dumb, and happy on his throne. And all of a sudden, very suddenly, very unexpectedly, he gets this news that there is a huge army that has surrounded and is coming at him from all directions. In a sense, three nations have come together with their leaders, and they are about 40 miles outside of Jerusalem. Notice it says in verse 1, later the Moabites, the Ammonites, along with some of the Menuhites, attacked Jehoshaphat, by the way, whose name means Jehovah rules. And we're going to see about that this morning. Messengers arrived and reported to Jehoshaphat, a huge army is attacking you from the other side of the Dead Sea. There's a crisis. And the crisis is this. This army, the people of God are no match for the size, the capability, the resources of this army. No way. It is huge. So imagine you're sitting there thinking all is well, and then one day you get this news very suddenly, unexpectedly. Here comes enemies who are attacking you. What do you do? What do we do as the people of God when our enemies attack or when we're under attack or when we're facing a crisis, when we're going through a very challenging time in our life? What are the people of God to do? 
There are four things I want you to see in this passage this morning. The first thing is they humbled themselves. Notice over in verse 12, they say, we are powerless against this huge army that attacks us. In other words, what we are dealing with, we realize is much bigger than us. We cannot defeat this enemy on our own. We're looking to you, God. We are humbling ourselves before you, and we're saying we need you. In fact, notice how often this phrase is used throughout the chapter. If you go back to verse 3, Jehoshaphat, first of all, notice, was afraid. Now, folks, he was a godly leader, and yet he was afraid. You know what? It's okay to be afraid. You know, I've been afraid at times through this ridiculous time that we're going through in our lives. It's okay to be afraid, but how do we respond to that fear when it rises up in us? Well, notice what he did. He decided to seek the Lord's advice, verse 3. Verse 4, the people of Judah assembled to ask for the Lord's help. They came from all the cities of Judah to ask for the Lord's help. Notice at the end of verse 9, we will cry out to you for help in our distress. The end of verse 12, we look to you for help. They were humbling themselves before the, before the Lord. And they were saying, what we are dealing with is bigger than greater than us. God, we need you. We are looking to you. We can't do this without you. And God always promises that he will give grace to those who humble themselves before him, that he will exalt the humble, but he will resist the proud. And so the first thing the people of God did when they faced a crisis that was bigger than them, the first thing they did when their enemies began to attack was they humbled themselves before the Lord. Secondly, look back in verse 3. They fasted, then in verse 6, they prayed. He decreed that all Judah should observe a fast, then verse 6, he prayed. Fasted and prayed. First, humble yourself. Second, fast and pray. Let's talk for a moment about fasting. Fasting, I like to look at it as sort of a Bunsen burner for our prayer life. Uh, or... or you know, nowadays I, I watch the weather every once in a while and all these storms and, you know, it, it's always been the case that when a, a tropical depression or a, a storm comes over warm water, that that warm water sort of even heats it up more and gets it cooking more and turns tropical storms into hurricanes. Well, think of a fast in your life spiritually as the warm water or a Bunsen burner. It just lights it up a little bit more. Why? Because a fast, whether we're in a sense laying aside a meal or a couple meals or physical food or something else, we're saying we're giving up. It is to create a real dominant, decisive, and determined focus for our prayer life. 
It is in a sense saying, I'm, I'm getting really down to business here with you, God, and I'm going to lay aside something in order that I can devote even more maybe time and energy and effort to prayer. And that's why many times in the Bible you see fasting with prayer. That's what the people of God did. That was another way that they responded to their crisis, is they humbled themselves before the Lord, and they fasted, and they prayed. It's never a bad idea to fast and pray. And maybe throughout this season that we find ourselves in, you have many times said, I, I, I need to spend a day fasting and praying. I need to really get on my knees, and I need to seek the Lord. And that's what they did. The third thing that they did here in this chapter is they took their positions. And notice in verse 9, we will stand in front of this temple before you. In a sense, we're going to come to the house of God, and we are going to present ourselves, notice, to you in this temple. Later on in verse 17, if you look there, a message came from the Lord saying to his people, and we'll get to this in a minute, you will not fight in this battle, but I do want you to do this. I want you to take your positions as my people stand and watch the Lord deliver you. I love that last phrase because doesn't it remind you exactly what Moses said when the people of God were standing on, on the brink and, and they had the Red Sea on one side of them and here came the Egyptian army on the other side and yet Moses said to God's people, stand and watch the salvation of the Lord. But I want you to notice the fact that the people of God were taking their positions where God wanted them to. Besides humbling ourselves and fasting and praying, each one of us has to find where is it that God wants me? What position does he want me to take? Where does he want me to be in the midst of all this? And where God may want you is different than maybe God, where God wants me, but God does want his people to come together. And, and even if we can come together in heart, because one of the things that, that is so grieving me during this season is how divisive this crisis ha has even divided the body of Christ, the church, and how we are fighting even as Christians amongst each other and how Satan is winning the day because he's dividing the body of Christ up. Folks, each of us needs to figure out where is our position and then take it. Take that position. Present ourselves before the Lord and basically say, Lord, where do you want me? Where do you want us? And obviously there were some of them that said, we're going to go to the house of God and we're going to stand there and make our stand there and we're going to present ourselves there. But maybe others, you got to find your place. You got to know where God wants you in the battle, you see. And you and I can't answer that question for each other. 
We alone, between us and God, have to answer that question. I know at the beginning of this crisis, and I'll get to it a little bit later, where God wanted me to place myself in the midst of this. But you've got to answer that question yourself. What position does God want you to be in during this season? And then they worshiped. They worshiped. They humbled themselves. They fasted and prayed. They took their positions. And as they took their positions, they worshiped. And what I want you to see this morning with these folks back in 2 Chronicles 20 is that they weren't worshiping the Lord because a crisis came. It is very clear that worship was not just a response to something when something bad happened. It was a lifestyle. It was something that they always did. And one of the clues to why we know that is because you see the people of God here worshiping God before the battle, during the battle, and after the battle. In fact, let me show you that beginning in verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face toward the ground, and all the people of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord and worshiped him. Then some of the Levites from the Kohathites and the Korathites got up and loudly praised the Lord God of Israel. That's before the battle, folks. That all took place before the battle. They were worshiping the Lord. Remember, worship at its very essence and core is simply acknowledging God's rightful place in the universe, in, in, in the midst of God's people, in our own lives. It is giving God his due. It, it is saying, God, you are great and you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of being first place. You are worthy of being exalted and lifted up. And they worship the Lord. They worship the Lord. Notice also, in the midst of the battle, verse 22, when they began to shout and praise, the Lord suddenly attacked the Ammonites, Moabites, and men from Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Don't miss that. I want to repeat that several times. When they began to shout and praise, the Lord broke through and defeated their enemies. When they began to shout and praise, the battle was won, and the Lord moved on behalf of his people. When they shouted and praised, the battle was not won by warfare. The battle was won through worship. In fact, in verse 21, it mentions that the worshipers marched ahead of the warriors. Think about the faith that that took. You got a huge army with all kinds of weapons coming at you. And you're going to put people without weapons who are simply there to, to uh, play their instruments and sing out to the Lord. And you're going to put them in front of all the warriors? Yeah. Why does God do that? Because, listen, there are times in our life where God may call us to actually fight, if you will, and we have to, to fight in a conventional way. But there are other times where 
He wants us to learn that no matter what battle we fight, worship is always essential. Whether we're called to warfare or not, you and I will never win one battle in our life without worship, without putting God where he belongs and acknowledging him, you see. And God wants us to learn that we can't win any battle without worship. And that the physical things even that we deal with still have to be, as God's people, one through supernatural spiritual means, not just earthly conventional means. In fact, Paul picks up on this point in 2 Corinthians and says to God's people, the weapons of our warfare are not earthly. They are spiritual weapons because they're the only ones that can tear down strongholds. And God's people, we have to learn that and be reminded of that. And that's why the worshipers went ahead of the warriors. It was also an act of faith on God's people's part. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. God wants to see that his people truly trust him and believe in him. And so the worshipers went first. And when they began to shout and praise, the Lord broke through and defeated the enemy. And then, after the battle, they saw all the huge army with all the bodies on the ground, no survivors, the Bible says in verse 24. And on the fourth day, verse 26, they assembled at a place called the Valley of Barakah, and where they praised the Lord. In fact, notice all the men of Judah, verse 27, in Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat leading them, and the Lord had given them reason to rejoice over their enemies. I love that phrase, the Lord gave us reason to rejoice. The Lord always gives us reasons to rejoice. No matter what season we're going through, what battle we're facing, what crisis we're facing or challenge or whatever, the Lord always gives his people reasons to rejoice. And so notice, they entered, verse 28, Jerusalem to the sound of stringed instruments and trumpets and proceeded to the temple of the Lord. Oh, we need to get this, folks. Worship is not something we just do occasionally. It's not something we do just in response when some, something big or major happens in our life. It is something we do continually, devotedly, energetically, enthusiastically, all the time, because the Lord is worthy of our worship and our praise. And we need to be a people that worships God before our battles, during our battles, and even after our battles, giving thanks to his name. Worship. The enemies are going to come. God never promises us that we won't face battles and trials and have enemies. The reality is we will always have enemies to deal with. The real question for us as God's people is how should we respond? And here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we are given a great template of how God's people are to respond to a crisis when, when the enemies come. Humble ourselves before the Lord. Fast and pray. And then 
take our positions wherever that is that God wants us to be, and fourth, worship. Worship. What will God do in response when he sees his people respond in this way? There are also four things I want you to see here this morning from this passage of Scripture. First of all, go back to verse 14. God, first of all, will unleash his spirit upon his people. Notice, in the midst of the assembly, I want you to remember that, in the midst of the assembly, the Lord's spirit came. Folks, this is more than just the indwelling of the Spirit that we all have as believers. This is more than just, as a New Testament Christian, being filled with the Spirit. No, no, no. This is something that, that is unique. This is something that God does, the Spirit of God does, every once in a while when His people come together and humble themselves and, and have fasted and prayed and have taken their positions and are worshiping Him. The Spirit of God will come in the midst of the assembly. And when, when the Spirit of God comes that way, and I believe that he's come that way a couple times in the history of the Oasis Church, that, that you and I will sense that spiritually, emotionally, and physically. We will sense his Spirit in some way. And maybe some of you who are looking at me a little strange even this morning, Maybe you've never been in a community of believers where God's Spirit came in the midst of a group of believers in that way like that. Or maybe you were in a group of believers like that at one time, but you didn't recognize that was the Spirit that was doing something. You didn't maybe really know what that was. You, you haven't recognized it. It sort of goes along with why we need to sort of grow in recognizing the voice of God in our life. Sometimes we need to grow as Christians and recognize, oh, that's the Spirit that's doing that. That's the Spirit that's working on my spirit. That's, that's the Spirit that's working on my maybe even emotions. I, I've been in situations even when the Spirit of God came where I just start weeping. I've been in situations where maybe I just felt just uncontrollable and, and, and fulfilling joy. But God will affect us in all areas, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I physically have, in a sense, felt the, the tangible presence of the Spirit. And sometimes it takes different forms. Sometimes it's like my body gets like hot. Sometimes I get like an adrenaline rush when I, when I sense and feel the Spirit moving. But the Spirit of God came upon the people of God, and they knew that the Spirit of God wasn't just inside of them as individual followers, but he was literally manifesting his presence in a special way in the midst of God's people. God will unleash his Spirit in response to God's people when we humble ourselves, when we fast and pray, when we take our positions, and when we worship him. And then the Bible says that when the Spirit came, he especially came upon this one individual that also then unleashed the Word of God to God's people. God will not only unleash his Spirit upon God's people, he will unleash his Word 
upon God's people. And he does so so that he can strengthen his people, so that he can comfort his people, so that he can reassure his people in the midst of the crisis when the enemies are attacking. Notice the message that came from God to his people here in verse 15. Don't be afraid. This is what the Lord says to you. Don't be afraid and don't panic because of this huge army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Notice verse 17 at the end. Don't be afraid and don't panic. Tomorrow, march out toward them. The Lord is with you. That was the message that God had. Again, a message of hope. A message of comfort, a message of reassurance, a message of strength. All you and I need to know is God's with us. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? It didn't matter how big the enemy was, how vast the army was, how daunting the challenge was, how big the trial was, how great the crisis was. It didn't matter. All that God's people needed to hear was that God is with us. Do you know that this morning? God is with you. And he wants to get that message across. But then, let's go back to verse 22. Another way God responds is he will unleash his power. He will unleash his spirit, he will unleash his word, and he will unleash his power. When they began to shout and praise, the Lord suddenly attacked the Ammonites, Moabites, and men from Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. God's power. God rescued, God saved, God delivered. And it's only by God's power that any of us can be truly saved, delivered, and rescued. And I'm not just talking about our initial salvation when we know that, that our sin has been conquered by his power through the blood of Jesus Christ and we've been made a child of God. I'm talking about every time throughout our life when we are facing something and we need to be delivered and saved and rescued. Only God's power can do it, my friends. Only God can completely eradicate the enemy and overcome the enemy and give us victory. Our only hope, our only victory is found in the power of God, which is why Paul said, I will not be ashamed of the power of God, for it is the power of God through his gospel that saves men, that rescues men, that delivers us. God fought the battle. The people of God had to humble themselves. They fasted and prayed. They took their positions and they worshiped. But God fought the battle for his people. And I submit to you that God is still fighting battles for his people today. He is still winning victories. And the only way that you and I will truly ever be overcomers and see victory in our life is when we humble ourselves, fast and pray, take our positions where God wants us, and worship. Then God unleashes his spirit. Then God unleashes his word. Then God 
unleashes his power. And finally, verse 30, God unleashes his peace. Jehoshaphat's kingdom enjoyed peace, literally in the Hebrew, quiet. And notice, his God made him secure on every side. Literally, to settle, be settled and be at rest. And this isn't just talking about external peace and external security and safety and all that. It's talking about inwardly as well. Only God can do that. He's the only one that can truly give any of us security and safety. Without God, we'll never achieve it. We'll never find it. We'll never experience it. And let me say to some of you and who maybe throughout this crisis and even the way that I have responded as the pastor of this church questioned what I'm doing and all of that, let, let me just say this. First of all, I have never denied that there is an actual crisis, because there is. And I am not, by the way I have responded here as the pastor of the Oasis, minimizing the crisis in any way, as maybe I've been accused. What I have done since day one is this. I heard the voice of God clearly say to me, Jeff, the shepherd of my people at the Oasis, this is the position I want you to take as you lead my people there. And that's why I have made the decisions that I have made. Now listen, let me say this. I can't hear God's voice for you any more than you can hear God's voice for me. You've got to make that choice yourself of what God wants you to do and how you can feel safe and secure and at peace and at rest in a situation like this. Only you and God can answer that, but every last one of us has to have an answer for that. What is going to make me feel safe and secure? What information, what data, what trend do I need to see? Is it going to come from outside or is it going to come from the Lord inside? How's it going to come? But somewhere along the line, I know this for sure. God wants his people to be at rest and settled in him and at peace. And without God, that can never be achieved because you and I will never get to a place of peace and safety and security apart from God. Now, maybe before March of this year, you may have felt safe. But can I tell you, if you felt safe, especially apart from God in certain circumstances happening before March, you were living under an illusion. Because let's face reality, we've never been safe here. God never promised us that we would be safe here. God's only promise was you will be safe in me. 
Notice, God made them secure on every side. Because only God can make us secure on every side. There's nothing that you and I can do to to try to make ourselves through earthly means, temporal means, uh, those physical means. There's nothing you and I can do to make ourselves totally feel safe and secure if we're not safe and secure inside. External safety and security can't happen apart from internal safety and security. And the only one that I've ever found that can make me be at peace and settled and at rest is the Lord. So let's hear the voice of God today and what he has to say to us beginning in verse 20. Early the next morning, They marched out to the desert of Tekoa. When they were ready to march, Jehoshaphat stood up and said, Listen to me, you people of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Two messages here. Trust in the Lord your God and you will be safe. Trust in the message of his prophets and you will win. So the first message is trust. Reminds us of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Trust. Second, he met with the people and appointed musicians to play before the Lord and praise his majestic splendor. And as they, the worshipers, marched ahead of the warriors, they said, give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love endures. Second message, give thanks. Trust, give thanks. Why? Because God's loyal love endures. In other words, he's saying to God's people, I know you're facing a great crisis right now. I know this huge army is getting ready to attack you. But none of this has ever cut off my love from you. In fact, none of you as my people ever go a second of your life without my love being poured out on your life, which is why Paul said to the Roman Christians, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. God's going to love us through this just as God has loved us through everything else in our life. And from the time you and I embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior to the time we see Jesus in heaven one day, God's love is going to be that constant that we can always bank on and count on, rely on, depend on, and live our life on. And God will even love us crazy love for the rest of eternity because God's spigot of love, God's waterfall of love will never be turned off or turned down upon us one little bit. You and I are living in the waterfall of God's love and his love endures forever. So my question to us today based upon our worship already and the word of God is this do we have any worshipers here this morning anyone want to worship the Lord this morning then would you stand with me please and let's pray and let's just give our worship team a a chance to just settle up here for a moment and let's 
Let's get ready to be worshipers of the Lord. Father God, you are our victory, God. You are our all in all. You are our everything. With you, there's nothing we can't do. With you, there's nothing we can't face. With you, God, there is no enemy that cannot be defeated. There is no crisis or challenge that cannot be overcome. Without you, we will fall every time. With you, we will win every time. God, you have called us today to be worshipers, to present ourselves in this house of God, to take our positions, to humble ourselves, to be people who fast and pray, and most of all, God, to be people who will worship you, who will just lay it all out there for you, God. And so in this moment right now, God, We are here to worship you. Would you unleash your spirit, God? Would you unleash your word? Would you unleash your power and your peace in this place this morning, God? Could we be overwhelmed, God, with your presence and power here this morning? Would you envelop your people with love? God, you love us so much. May we feel and sense and taste that love, taste the goodness of God today in this room. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.